I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Esti Chandler of Jewish Voice for Peace joins us to discuss the recent remarks by Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich concerning the Palestinian village of Huara in the occupied West Bank. For the benefit of those who may not be caught up on the latest developments in Israel-Palestine, last week Israeli settlers attacked Hawara, burning down houses and cars and going on what has been described as a rampage. Smotrich responded to this by saying that the town of Hawara should be wiped out. Smotrich's comments have been condemned by the U.S. State Department, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and multiple Jewish American community leaders and organizations. Jewish Voice for Peace released a statement after Smotrich's remarks were made arguing that the Biden administration should not grant Smotrich entry into the United States and withdraw U.S. military support for Israel based on Smotrich's statements. Since then, Smotrich has been granted a visa to come into the U.S. on Sunday, March 12th, for an Israeli bonds conference in Washington, D.C. We'll be discussing all of that, as well as Esti's personal journey as an activist, 
Her thoughts on issues like the BDS or Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, debate around the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Esty Chandler of Jewish Voice for Peace. Welcome to Parallax Views, Esty Chandler of Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, an organization we'll be talking about that's doing rather important work when it comes to Israel and Palestine and also the co-host of the Middle East in Focus radio show on KPFK. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing very good, and I'm excited to be speaking with you. I reached out to Jewish Voice for Peace after hearing the news of uh, Bezalil Smotrich, uh, a senior ministerial figure in Israel. I believe he's the finance minister, uh, making some comments about Huwara. Uh, I know he's since said that he's been misinterpreted or he's walked it back a little bit. But what were the comments he made? And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the events that happened in Huwara as well. Sure. Well, just days after Israeli settlers carried out massive orchestrated attacks on the Palestinian town of Huwara, which is in the occupied West Bank, the Israeli finance minister, Bezal Smutrich, doubled down on uh, what has been his record of uh, settler violence and support for expanding settlements, um, calling on, calling for, sorry, the entire town of Huara to be quote unquote wiped out. Um, after that, uh, additional Israeli government officials publicly supported these settler led attacks. And the thing about it is that Smotrich's words weren't just irresponsible when he called for the Palestinian village of Huwara uh, to be wiped out. His words were an incitement to more violence. He is an Israeli public official. Um, he has been and continues to be a dangerous person who now actually has power over is uh, Palestinian lives and the things he says can get people killed. You know, the, 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 his calling for wiping out the village um, is quite frankly, a call for state sanctioned ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from their own land. Yeah. I was going to say, I think he said, you know, uh, he didn't want the vigilantes to be doing this settlers. He said the state should be doing this, essentially. Right. But we shouldn't be confused. The settlers are sanctioned by the state. The, the, the army was there. The military was there not to thwart off the, the settlers that were attacking, but um, to protect them. Uh, you know, to we can't look at that attack um as not being state sanctioned, uh, which as you make the point, some in the Israeli government are now making that claim, but the, the soldiers that were there did actually worse than nothing to help the Palestinians. They, they prevented ambulances and medical personnel from reaching the injured and dying 
They shared water with the settler attackers. And from reports that I'm reading, they may have even fired live ammunition into the crowd. So uh, just to give my listeners some perspective, because I always assume I have new listeners or listeners that are unfamiliar with Israel and Palestine and this whole situation. Huwara is in the West Bank. This is a Palestinian territory. For decades now, it's been occupied by Israeli forces. Uh, you have settlers trying to push out the Palestinians. And, uh, you know, there was a, an incident involving a Palestinian gunman that, that shot two Israeli settlers. The response to that, though, is this massive retaliation of burning down houses, burning cars. Uh, there were, you know, fatalities in this as well, we should note. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what people maybe don't understand about the nature of this occupation and what people like Smotrich are doing. Right. Well, you know, Israel has been occupying the West Bank since 1967. Uh, the, the settlers didn't just appear there. The settler, the settler movement was sanctioned by the state of Israel in order to, quote unquote, create facts on the ground. The, the, they wanted to create those facts in order to prevent the possibility of a Palestinian state from ever being formed. So they built settlements. They gave tax breaks to, you know, if you if you bought homes there. They made it very, very enticing for someone living in a small apartment in Tel Aviv where the rent kept going up. Well, here you can have this big home. You can have a swimming pool. You can have a break on your taxes. I mean, the, the idea was to draw people, not only Israelis, to, to buy these homes and to move there and to have businesses move there into industrial parks. But I think something like a third of the settlers are actually from other parts of the world, including, you know, many, many American citizens that have, you know, taken up this um, call. And and the point is to try to move uh, Palestinians off their land into smaller and smaller little enclaves, very similar to the Bantustan project in South Africa. Um, you know, not a coincidence that the two governments, two apartheid governments came into being in 1948, the South African apartheid government and the Israeli apartheid government. And um, and so this is just uh, a continuation of that project. And the escalating Israeli violence against Palestinians is the absolute inevitable outcome of the Zionist political movement that founded Israel, that, you know, launched this uh, quest to settle people across the West Bank and so on. I want to return to that, uh, if we could, a little bit later in the conversation. But I currently have an article pulled up uh, from the Times of Israel, uh, just came out on the 9th of March. So just yesterday, uh, Smotrich says he didn't realize his wipeout Huara call would be seen as IDF order. How, how do you respond when you hear something like that? Because I, my first response to hearing that he's walking this back by saying that he's been misinterpreted by the media and whatnot is, I don't know how you can misinterpret a statement like the town of Huwara should be wiped out. 
you know, he's saying, oh, I didn't mean that we should hurt innocent civilians. Well, what does wiping out a town mean? You know, I, I'm just perplexed at this. I think you're reading it absolutely correctly. It also uh, he's assuming that nobody is everybody's just going to forget his entire life. He has been who he is. He has been a public figure. He has been calling for violence. He, he's it's not like it, it's preposterous, honestly, that he um, is saying what he's saying for any other reason than, you know, someone told him he had to say it uh, because he literally called for the ethnic cleansing of people as what would, uh, what can only be called a pogrom against Palestinians was being carried out. It's interesting, too, because he's sort of making these, I would say, half-hearted so-called walk back in quote statements now. Uh, because he's he, the, the U.S. is saying we may not give you a visa and they have granted him a visa now so that he can come uh, to the U.S. for, I think, um, an Israeli bonds meeting on Sunday. What do you think about the U.S. reaction? Should he have been granted that visa? And maybe you could talk a little bit about the uh, JVP actions statement on uh, Smotrich's comments. Yeah, he absolutely should not have been um, issued that visa. Uh, I, I think if you can, it would be preposterous to think that they would have given a visa to any other, uh, you know, public official who had called for something like that. And the fact of the matter is, is that the U.S. is complicit in and supports escalating Israeli violence. Uh, we do that by sending over $3.8 billion in military funding every year and to continuing to shield the Israeli government from accountability in the international arena, uh, the U.S. should immediately, we should not have given him the visa. We, Our government should immediately take steps to withdraw support and to hold the Israeli government accountable for these gross violations of human rights abuses, of war crimes against Palestinians, um, including our funding and diplomatic support. Would you include, say, withdrawing things like arms support to Israel uh, over a statement like this? I mean, I think we should have withdrawn military support long before the statement like this. But I mean, complete impunity, what else can you call it? it they're burning down villages. What what would it take if this is if this is activity, if this is behavior that the U.S. government is going to watch and say, um, you know, here, have a visa, come to America to raise more money for to invest in Israeli settlements, to invest in Israeli bonds, then exactly where is the red line? One thing I wanted to talk about, you mentioned um, this idea, this ideology of Zionism. Can you explain what Zionism is for people that may get confused when they hear that term, if they're not familiar with it? Sure. Zionism... Um, it was the political movement to create a state of, by, and for Jews in historic Palestine. And since the state's establishment, Zionism, the ideology behind Zionism is the Israeli state policy and the continued support of that, which is nothing less than apartheid by the you know UN definition of apartheid um 
And so it's the continued support of that in, in spite of the ethnic cleansing, the human rights abuses, the home demolitions, the child arrests and abuses, um, in some cases, torture of Palestinians in order to make life so difficult for them that they would just up and leave, which we can see 75 years later is not going to happen. Out of curiosity, so how do you respond to people that say, well, Smotrich, he represents the religious Zionism party. So he represents the most far right end of Zionism. You know, I have liberal Zionist friends, for instance, will say, you know, I don't support what Smotrich supports. Do you think there's any ground that can be made between liberal Zionists and anti-Zionists when it comes to pushing back against these human rights abuses? Or do you think we're not analyzing something that's inherent to Zionism itself? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't begin to speak for liberal Zionists. I think that, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. And the fact of the matter is that since Israel's founding, it didn't matter if someone on the left, on the right, in the center was in charge of the government, was the head of state. Every single administration has expanded what is, frankly, a settler colonial movement um, and project. And we know that well as Americans, because that's how our country was founded. So, you know, when we talk about shared values, I think those are the shared values of, you know, human rights abuses and settler colonial colonialism. And as long as you are supporting a state where Jews hold supremacy over others, including the indigenous people that were in that land before the Zionist movement brought people like my own family to Palestine, then, you know, you how do you say that you're not in support of all of it? You know, it, it is the government that is doing all this, that's leading it. If you could, and I, 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 if you don't want to talk about it because it's personal, I understand, but I, I'm curious, I think personal testimony is very powerful to people. What was your sort of awakening to this issue and why is it important to you? Um, thanks for that question. Uh, so as I said, I come from a very large Israeli family and I'd been there many times. I had also never heard words like Palestinian or occupation. I had also never heard the word Zionism. So my my aware, uh, awakening, as you put it, came uh, when I spent a year organizing with the Obama for America campaign in 2007 and 2008. And there was a lot of incoming about this, you know, crazy Muslim takeover of the White House. And I was shocked. I, I was naive. I was shocked by the amount of racism coming from the Jewish community. And I realized that I needed to have a better understanding about where all this was coming from. And so after the campaign, I educated myself about the founding of Israel, about those so-called facts on the ground. And quite frankly, it gutted me. I, I was horrified. And it uh, you know, didn't take long before I realized that I, if I once I had learned what was going on and what my family had participated in for all this time, for me personally, if I chose to put my head down and keep working on publicly funded elections, that I was complacent. I, I would com was complicit. 
that if, you know, if I did that, I was no different than the people in Europe who knew that Jews were being taken on trains to their deaths. And I simply refused to be that. I continue to refuse to be that. And so that is how I became involved. And, um, and during my education, learned of Jewish Voice for Peace and joined. And uh, in, uh, in 2010, they, you know, asked if I was interested in launching a chapter here in Los Angeles. And I did that. So that leads me to my next question. What role do you see American Jews playing in the struggle uh, for Palestinian liberation? And, and in addition to that, I'm curious uh, what your response is when, you know, pro-Israeli groups or voices, Zionist voices say, you know, people like Esti or uh, the Jewish Voice for Peace, uh, these are just minority voices within the Jewish community. Uh, you know, most of the Jewish community supports uh, Israel. So these people are just sort of a fringe. How do you respond to those people? And also, what role do you think American Jews can play in the struggle for Palestinian liberation? I know that's a two-parter, but... That's okay. I think that... Um... I think that they're wrong. I think that people like me are the are in many cases the silent majority. That there are many Jews that you know aren't engaged daily in this struggle, but who are abhorrent. You know, find that the way Israel's conducting itself abhorrent, and that it is at, to your other question vitally important that we stop being silent, that we stand up. I do believe that, you know, roughly half the Jews in the world, I believe, live outside of Israel and most of them in the United States. And that our government support of this is a linchpin. And that if we want to change U.S. policy in regards to Israel and Palestine, we need to engage with those policymakers. We need to make our voices heard because if more people showed, you know, and what we see in polling in the trends is that amongst younger generations, amongst minority groups, um, amongst progressives, the, the support for Palestinian rights is going up in, on a quite a steep line as, you know, the internet has made information more accessible shows like yours makes the information much more accessible to the average american and beyond american jews playing an important role in letting the policymakers know that we do not support this and that we won't support them if they continue to support it every american has skin in this game you said it over 3.8 billion dollars a year and there's other monies that go there as well. This is monies that, that aren't going to our communities to fix bridges, to update our antiquated schools, to give health care and housing to our own citizens. Everybody should be upset about us diverting this much of our public funds, our tax dollars, to supporting this you know, apartheid regime hell-bent on violating the human rights of Palestinians. Yeah, I also, I think it's interesting when people say, oh, uh, these these criticisms are just fringe voices. You know, I mentioned, I mean, there are various different groups within uh, the American Jewish community that have varying levels of support for Israel, and they actually, some support, you know, better treatment of Palestinians. So I, I feel like there's something 
you know, in my view, weirdly anti-Semitic about saying, uh, you know, oh, no, all of us within the community all think the same. We all support Israel. There's something, I, I'm sorry, but it just seems anti-Semitic in and of itself when I hear that uh, from pro-Israel voices. Don't be sorry. It is absolutely, unequivocally anti-Semitic for anyone to call, you know, me or anybody else, you know, a self-hating Jew or, you know, a friend to, to what what you were saying is they're they're um, conducting themselves with the notion that all Jews should think this way. And so, you know, therefore, anybody who doesn't, they're the ones that are off base. I, I wholeheartedly disagree. I think that the majority of uh, Jewish people that I know that I interact with believe in doing unto others as we would have done unto ourselves. I think the majority of Christians and Muslims and Sikhs and, you know, vegetarians and vegans and pet owners. I mean, this is a majority viewpoint. And yet here we have people trying to tell people that, you know, that's not the case. And, you know, trying even going so far as to trying to change the very definition of the word anti-Semitism to include anti-Zionism, to include criticism of Israel as being anti-Semitic. And that are, is are you referring are you referring to the uh, the whole issue of over the I guess the IHRA definition, right? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. The IHRA definition of uh, it's called the working definition of of anti-Semitism. Um, and they have this group called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance to give it, you know, that heart tug. Because if you mention the Holocaust, you're going to feel sympathetic towards Jews. Everybody does. Um, and yet this definition was created to halt and suppress Palestinian solidarity organizing because it gives examples of anti-Semitism in modern life. And the majority of these, I believe there's like 12 examples, are about Israel. And the truth is that Israel isn't, you know, anti-Semitism is about suppression, hatred, oppression of Jewish people because they're Jewish. It has nothing to do with supporting a highly militarized modern nation state of Israel which is Zionism, as you know, we discussed earlier. And so this idea to conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism so that you can, you know, start to in 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 um pull in like laws against racism, against uh 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 sorry, um you know, treating people and against bigotry that it, it's really just another mask. And it's it's so harmful because the truth of the matter is that as we see all forms of racism rising around us, anti-Black racism, anti-Latinx racism, anti-Muslim racism, we're also seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in this country. And when you are playing with fire by calling Every person and every book and every article and an effort 
to support the humanity and the rights of Palestinian people, anti-Semitic, you are actually, you know, helping the people, the white nationalists, the white supremacists, because anti-Semitism is a core part of racism. I just wanted to add to that. I, th I think it's interesting when I see figures like, um, I forget the, the fellow's name, but he, I know he's the head of the uh, Zionist Organization of America. When I see people like that, you know, uh, praising or defending Donald Trump, you know, it, it's so fascinating to me because you have Donald Trump saying things like, you know, American Jews aren't supportive enough of Israel as if they have some duty to support Israel. It, it does seem like at times there's almost like um, these figures that are very anti-Semitic that are supportive of Israel. Um, you know, I guess people will try to debate that with with regards to Trump, people like uh, the Zionist Organization of America. But what, what do you think about the relationship between uh, figures like Smotrich and then these uh, anti-Semitic figures in the U.S.? Well, you mean you put your thumb on it that, that Donald Trump is a well-known anti-Semite. He has been involved in anti-Semitic remarks. He he he's was speaking before, I think, the Zionist Organization of America and said, you all don't like me because I don't need your money. Just using anti-Semitic tropes over and over again in his campaign ads, he used them. So he really illuminated the thing that you're talking about, that one can absolutely be anti-Semitic and a supporter of Zionism. In fact, you know, when you think about the Balfour Declaration, Balfour was an anti-Semite. And the reason why anti-Semitic people love Israel, well, it's twofold. One, they want Jews to go there because they don't want them living wherever their here is. They also, white nationalists in this country, hold up Israel and say, look, we love Israel. Israel's wonderful. Americans love Israel. That's what we want. And they, it, because it's a Jewish supremacist state and they want a white Christian supremacist state. And so, you know, it, Trump actually helped illuminate this idea. Plus, you see the state of Israel itself welcoming people like Viktor Orban and other well-known, horrible anti-Semites to, to visit Israel. So Israel is no longer you know, is supportive of Jews, it's first and foremost, it's supportive of Zionism. So if we could, and I was going to mention since just for my listeners sake, the figure I was talking about uh, was uh, Morton Klein, who's the head of the COA, Zionist Organization of America. But you're actually touching upon a point I wanted to get to, which is when it comes to this issue, I feel like a lot of people that are unfamiliar with it will th say things like, oh, th this is just like an ancient religious battle. Uh, you know, I can't understand it. I can't possibly, you know, uh, form an opinion on it. What do you think the best pieces of evidence that you give when you have this conversation, when you're introducing people to the subject? What do you say to them to sort of get them to realize the sort of power imbalance between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Because I think there is a very real power imbalance. Absolutely. The Israeli government's domination and oppression of Palestinians is, you know, the root cause of the kinds of senseless, tragic deaths and violence that we're talking about. It's not a conflict. It's not a cycle of violence between two equal parties. This is the 
Israeli military terrorizing a people that have been living under military occupation, you know, in some cases, you know, since 1967, in some cases before then. Um, the, there is just no truth to the fact that this is an ancient, you know, uh, uh, battle between Jews and, and Arabs or Jews and Muslims. This is the, the Zionist political movement started in 1897. Like this is a, a modern phenomenon. It, it is, like I said, it is not based in anything other than a settler colonial project. And the, um, you know, under Netanyahu's leadership, the far right government has now de facto annexed the occupied West Bank. He's placed it under the, you know, control of people who believe in the domination of Jews over Palestinians across the entire land, like the minister, um, Bezalel Smotrich. Um, and the Israel's, you know, their, their military raids are increasing. This is, there's just nothing about- Real, real quick, real quick, not to, not to interrupt you, but I was going to say, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the military raids because, you know, we pointed out earlier that the uh, attack on Huwara was in response to a Palestinian gunman killing two settlers. But what that Palestinian gunman was responding to was the Israeli forces killing 11 Palestinians in a raid on uh, the city of Nablus in uh, the West Bank days prior. Uh, so this has become a very dangerous tit for tat. And it seems like one side uh, ends up retaliating with much more excessive violence than the other. That's right. The, we now see the Israeli government orchestrating absolutely horrifying levels of violence against Palestinians, the worst violence we've seen, um, certainly in this century. Um, the, like you say, the massive disparity of power between the Israeli government and the Palestinians is on full display nightly because the Israeli army raids Palestinian cities and villages. They invade Palestinian homes. They arrest their children. They're arresting children as young as 12 years old. Um, these attacks by Israeli settlers are enabled and supported by the military. The military is there when the, and they do not stop the settlers from their violence. They, they protect them. Um, you know, this year alone, soldiers have killed at least 65 Palestinians. I believe they're more Palestinians been killed than there are days in this year. Um, and, you know, this is, like I said, a, an inevitable outcome of Zionism. So I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier. Uh, you mentioned this idea of Jewish supremacism. And I've talked about this with other guests, including uh, Israeli human rights activists. You know, this term is is actually used in Israeli newspapers now to describe the ideology of figures like Itamar Ben-Giver and uh, Bezalel Smotrich. But I think a lot of people in the U.S., they hear that term and they think, oh, that that's like that David Duke style talk. You know, uh, that, that's what these white nationalists talk about. So what do we mean when we say uh, Jewish supremacism in the context of Israel versus what maybe, you know, uh, these sort of right wing white nationalist types like David Duke, how they use the term? 
Yeah, I believe it was in 2017 that Israel passed a um, a basic law, which they don't have a constitution, so their basic laws are kind of like constitutional amendments, stating just that, that Israel is for the benefit of Jews, that the land is for the development and occupation of Jews only. They, It's not something that other people are saying, oh, it's Jewish supremacy. They said it. They put it into their the highest law saying that this is what Israel is. And like I said, the subtext is if you don't like it, if you don't want to be a second class or third class or fourth class citizen, then, you know, go somewhere else. It's not just other people saying this. Israel's very proud to be a Jewish supremacist state. Real quick, I wanted to add that, uh, and it's not just voices like Jewish Voice for Peace or people like yourself. I wanted to mention uh, the Israeli historian uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who a lot of people know him for his books, uh, Sapiens and Homo Deus. You know, he recently came out and said that he thinks that Israel has given up on a two-state solution, and they've embraced what he calls a multi-tiered class system where Jews, Israeli Jews, are on top, a three-classes solution, as he calls it. And he thinks it's terrible, but that's sort of his assessment. And he isn't really known for being a, you know, an outspoken voice on Israel-Palestine, but even he is saying that they're creating a uh, three-classes sort of system, a multi-tiered class system, which to me, it sounds like, I mean, there's other words we could use for that that begin with an A, like apartheid. I mean, if anybody just Googles the word apartheid and reads the definition, it, it literally you would think that it was written specifically about Israel. What it wasn't, but what you said is absolutely true. I mean, the whole idea that there are some people now, you know, pulling back from the two state solution. Israel never supported two state solution. Even Netanyahu himself has said, "Listen, you know." I'm for what you guys are for, the Itamar Ben-Gavirs and the um, Bazal Smotriches. Just stick with me. Talk nicer so that the Americans, you know, will calm down. It's it's a name game. You do not move 650,000 plus citizens illegally against international law across a border into an occupied, a military occupied territory if you're really interested in creating a second state there for the Palestinian people, the whole settler project is evidence that that was never the intention. The intention was, is, and you know, will continue to be Jewish domination of the entire land of historic Palestine. This is also it's surreal to even talk about. You know, when we talk about the occupied Palestinian territories. They've been occupied since 1967. So this has been a perpetual occupation. That's right. Now, you know, I guess Israel's response to that would be, well, this is needed for our national security and to defend ourselves. But it's just bizarre to me because how can you occupy perpetually, like endlessly? There's no end in sight. That seems like it's something more than self-defense. Right. It seems like it's you know, a political ploy to say, oh, you know, this is temporary. It's clearly not temporary. You don't build freeways and and rail lines and universities and cities if you plan to pick up and leave. It's so clearly there's zero evidence that it's temporary. There's full evidence that it's permanent. And 
that's why it's time for American Jews, for Jews in other parts of the world to stand up and say, not in my name. If you could, could you talk about Israel and Palestine and the occupation in relation to other struggles? So, you know, I have, you know, friends that uh, their big human rights concern is, say, the uh, Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara, or they're concerned about what's happening in Ukraine. And in a way, I think a lot of these different struggles are actually related. And we sort of have to uh, acknowledge that, you know, these are all rooted in, in different things that are related in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, definitely the situation in Morocco and in Palestine, the U.S. government is continuing to support the occupiers in both those situations. I think one of the interesting things about the Ukrainian story, and I say this, my family came to Palestine from Ukraine. My family is Ukrainian, um, is that you saw on the cover of the New York Times, you know, photos of hundreds of Molotov cocktails of, of, of Ukrainians making them, cheering them on for protecting their land. And yet show me an incident where you ever saw, you know, a Palestinian using armed resistance to protect themselves, to, to stave off people attacking them. You know, there was never been any support for armed resistance, even, you know, though it is enshrined in international law that you have a right to protect yourself, to protect your home, to protect your family. So, you know, the um, the hypocrisy is is bold and in neon lights here. So in regards to the present moment, I do feel, and, and maybe you'll disagree with me, but I do feel like this moment we're at right now with Netanyahu back in power is scarier than maybe previous regimes in Israel or previous governments in Israel, especially because people like Itamar Ben-Giver and uh, Bezalel Smotrich have these high positions of authority within the Israeli government. How did we get to this point? And is this a more dangerous moment than other moments uh, in the Israeli government's history? Absolutely. Again, I'll say that this is an inevitable outcome of Zionism. The fact that now the, the most extreme elements have been brought into the government, have been put in positions of power over people's lives. The, um, the Like you said, the most right-wing, the most racist government in Israel's history and that's why I say that as Jews, as American citizens, as humans, how if this is if we don't speak up, if we don't stand up, if we don't take to the streets to say enough, we are not going to support this in 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 word, in deed, in with resources, then then where are we? I mean, this government is making no qualms about their goals. Like I said, they have basically de facto annexed the West Bank. So this is a terrifying time. And it is terrifying to me personally, as a proud American Jew, that our government has been, you know, completely, you know, absent. Their hollow words are, are not even like even if even if their words were were less hollow they're, they're not they're not saying 
we need to stop this. They're they're literally just, you know, standing by, wagging their finger, saying, we wish you wouldn't do this. They need to take action. They need to take action to stop this. They need, like, who, who else does the American government give money to without condition? I mean, this is mind boggling. And if the American government doesn't get that they have to stop it, then the American people need to make them know they have to loudly and clearly. What would your advice be to individuals who want to get involved in activism for social justice, particularly for the Palestinian cause? Join one of the organizations. There's plenty of them, you know, whether it's Jewish Voice for Peace, whether it's um, Americans for Justice in Palestine, the, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, Adult Justice Project. There's many, many groups organizing to um, in support of Palestinian rights. Find the one that you feel comfortable with and join. Um, you know, JVP, just to make sure people know, we are Jewish Voice for Peace. We are not an exclusive Jewish organization. We are Jews and allies working together for Palestinian equality and human rights. Um, and, and make sure if, you know, there are four people that care about us. There are two senators and our congressional representative and whoever the party you happen to be affiliated with uh, a nominee for president. And people, you know, we need to yield our powers both as voters to let them know that we are not going to support policymakers who are going to continue these policies. And also the thing that we can do is use a, the second way that Americans get to vote. We get to vote every single day with our dollars, who we support, who we withdraw support from. If, if, if anybody, like it's very easy to check a label on products and say, you know what? I'm not going to support American company, uh, uh, Israeli companies right now. I, I want to see a change. And if they see people deciding to boycott their products or divest from companies, not just Israeli companies, but American companies and international companies that are profiting off the occupation, that are supplying weaponry, then that's going to send a loud message. You know, also culturally, if 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 celebrities, if if musicians decide that they're not going to go play there as they did in South Africa, where they decided they weren't going to go play Sun City, they're going to boycott. Israelis are going to feel that they want to go to concerts just like the rest of us. If you decide, you know what, when I want to go to the theater, if I want to go to the opera ballet, I'm not going to go see the Israeli national um, ballet troupe or theater group or symphony when they come, because those are representatives of the state that is culturally whitewashing the occupation because they're not talking about that. They're saying, look at Israel. Even if you see their brand Israel campaigns on TV, it's laughable. You don't see a soldier in any of them. You see beaches and bikinis. So we can boycott we can check our investments if you have them and make sure you're not investing in companies that are supporting it. And we can call upon our own government to sanction Israel. I was going to say, so you're referring there to the BDS movement, uh, boycott, divestment, sanctions. Uh, there's been issues with that, attempts to essentially make it 
uh, illegal. I mean, this has become a First Amendment issue. Could you speak to that? Absolutely. Um, there's a fantastic film out now that's um, available on multiple streaming platforms as of March 1st called Boycott. And it's by Just Vision that make fantastic documentary films. And it shows uh, three people who actually have brought suit against their states in, I believe, uh, 33 or 34 states now. Legislatures have put in anti-BDS legislation that punishes Americans for boycotting Israel. And this uh, documentary beautifully shows the quest of, of average people, people who uh, are a teacher, who have a contract. They teach special needs students and they have a contract with the state to do so. Uh, the, one of the few um, Arabic speaking speech pathologists. And when the contract comes up for renewal, all of a sudden, they are being made, a Palestinian American being made to sign a pledge saying, I do not and will not boycott Israel. I mean, can you imagine anything less constitutional? Um, and so we now see where a foreign government, a campaign by a foreign government is now eroded the very civil rights, constitutional rights of everyday Americans. There's a gentleman who's not in the film who was applying for government aid from Hurricane Harvey in Texas. And because Texas's law says you can't get government aid if you boycott Israel, he could not get the funds to help his home repairs unless he signed a pledge to a foreign nation. I mean, Whoever thought that we would see such a thing in the United States of America, it's absurd. And again, I say, if people are enraged by it, then you need to let your policymakers, your elected representatives know that. There's just a few more things I want to touch upon if you have the time. You know, we, we talked earlier about how people could get involved with activism and speaking out on this issue. But that also leads into another question which is, I think there are people that want to show support and want to get active within movements that are about social justice and uh, Palestinian human rights. Uh, but there's fear in the air at times. You have these groups around, like Stand With Us or Canary, Canary Mission, uh, that go after uh, pro-Palestinian or anti-Zionist activists. Uh, a few years ago, we saw the incident with an AP reporter, Emily Wilder, who was a uh, member, I believe, of Jewish Voice for Peace when she was in college. Uh, right after graduating, she gets a job AP. And, you know, there was all this pushback because she was part of Jewish Voice for Peace in college. And she gets fired. Um, and I think that's sending a message, which is, you know, uh, if you express these views, uh, we can put your job in jeopardy. Your job can be put in jeopardy. Uh, you'll be socially ostracized. And I think people are afraid of that. So what do you say to people that have fears about being targeted uh, for getting involved in this type of activism? I think they're humans. I think you just laid out what the goal of the Canary Mission, you know, uh, digital blacklist was. It was to, you know, make, make students who were, 
uh, active with Students for Justice in Palestine or Jewish Voice for Peace on campus or other campus organizations that were working towards awareness and education about Palestinian rights to make them know that when you get out of college, we're going to create this blacklist. We're going to pump money in it so that when somebody Googles your name, the first thing they see is your canary mission, you know, profile that twists everything you've done and said into a negative light. I can't, I can't tell you that, you know, there are no repercussions. There are, uh, you know, my case in point, less than four months after I launched Jewish Voice for Peace Los Angeles, I awoke to find on my front doorstep a wanted poster of me with information gathered from the web, including naming children in my family by name. I mean, tiny children. And, you know, hoping that they would put, you know, the fear in this person who they didn't know who they were and where they came from, and that maybe they would just crawl back where they were and do whatever they were doing before. So inciting fear in Americans, spying on Americans on college campuses, um, that I'm, I can't say that that's not part of it. But what I can say is that there are a network, there are net, a giant network, an interconnected network of activists and organizations that work to defend these people. I mean, if you watch this beautiful, brilliant movie, Boycott, you will see the ACLU lawyers, the Council on American Islamic Relations lawyers that are going to court. They went all the way to the Supreme Court to fight for this. So it's not like you'll be out there alone. You'll actually find an amazing, loving, peaceful, brilliant community working together to reject that kind of fear mongering and include and support everyone who wants to stand up and use their voice for humanity, for equal rights, for safety, um, for justice, for all peoples. Yeah, and I was gonna add, uh, because I don't think many people have talked about it, but since I mentioned Emily Wilder, it, you know, people may not realize this, but she still writes. Uh, she's a journalist, I believe, for the Santa Rosa Press Democrats. So there is, you know, e even if uh, you can be canceled, uh, quote unquote, for your views on Israel, uh, for doing activism, there is another side. And, you know, there is support systems. And, you know, you, you will be able to find a, a way to navigate this world, even if you're expressing views that can cause some level of ostracization. You will find new people, you'll find new jobs, and there are supporters out there. That's right. If they want to cancel, there are other people who, who will be happy to add. So before we start wrapping up, what do you think the most important points people need to understand about the current situation that we see ourselves in when talking about the occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the current Israeli government and the rise of figures like Itmer Ben-Giver and Bezalel Smotrich? I think the most important thing for people to understand is that the power to end this is within our own hands, that as as Americans, we have great power to end this. This is a man made catastrophe. And so what I like to say is that therefore women can solve it. This is not this is something within our grasps. 
We, this isn't a force of nature. We can fix this. What we need to do is to use our voices to, you know, to boycott, to divest, to keep in touch with our elected representatives, not to go away. Trust me, the other side is contacting them all the time. The, the most important thing we can do is not be silent because in the end, if we're silent, we're actually helping the oppressors. It's always been the case throughout history. We need to you know, stand together and use what we have you know, in our grasps, which is voting, which is contacting our legislators, which is boycotting, divesting, um, pulling together with communities. And, and like you said, realizing the interconnectedness of all these oppressions on minority groups. I was also going to ask in that regard, um, I know I, I understand the Jewish Voice for Peace stance and your stance that is uh, explicitly anti-Zionist um, or even supportive of, of movements like BDS. I mean, I think people can argue about things like BDS. There may be people listening that don't support BDS. I have a pretty wide range of listeners, but I feel like, you know, we can have disagreements, but I think, you know, there are ways in which we can come together, even if we have disagreements. Uh, in order to support Palestinian human rights and just the, the, you know, the recognition of basic human rights, whether you're a member of Jewish Voice for Peace or a member of J Street. Uh, I know there are some differences that are, you know, they're just, you know, lines in the sand, but I think we can in some ways come together on certain issues uh, and we can all come together and say what happened in Huara and the statements made by Smotrich are unacceptable. And the lack of response by the U.S. government is unacceptable, is appalling. And again, that's, you know, let the White House know how you feel. It is unbelievable that the, the lack of action. And, and you hear that there's spokespeople like they can barely even get a sentence out because they're afraid to say anything. They're. You know, they're, uh, it's it's mind boggling. And only if they feel pressure from U.S. citizens is that going to change. I also should ask, because I don't think we got into it earlier. You know, this decision to give Smotrich the visa so he can come to this meeting in D.C. on Sunday that he was supposed to attend. What kind of message is that sending to Palestinians uh, the allies of Palestinians and also just the international community. Uh, do you think that that's sending a message that makes the U.S. look uh, just it casts the U.S. in a very negative light, maybe? Yeah, I mean, we have a U.S. president who came in saying that human rights was going to be at the forefront of his foreign policy. And we've seen him make statements uh, in support of many minorities and many communities around the world and almost nothing about Palestinian rights. It is so hypocritical that that is why we need to use our strength as American citizens to let them know this is unacceptable. The American government would, it, it, they're allowing the visa to given the a, a political, a, you know, diplomatic visa is, how is that not, how, it can't be seen as anything else but support for what this man stands for, what he has said. You can't say we don't support it. Oh, but here's a diplomatic visa. 
come and raise money and talk to Americans. And I can only hope that this weekend in America, people will join groups that are going out in the streets to say, not in our name, not with our tax dollars, and you're not going to get our support if you continue to support this, you know, fascists coming to America. Just uh, two more brief questions here. Uh, what do you think the future holds when it comes to uh, Palestinian human rights, the occupation, Israel, uh, et cetera? I mean, it, it seems like these are pretty dire times. At the same time, I do think that there is uh, a turning of the tide. I think younger people especially do not have the same views on Israel-Palestine as maybe um older folks who grew up around the time of 67 and whatnot. I think people are seeing things differently. These younger people are. Uh, do you think there is hope going forward? Because sometimes it can feel like uh, very depressing, I think, for uh, activists that believe in human rights, especially in regards to Israel-Palestine. I think you're right. But I also think that, as you said, there are, you know, there are things that give us hope, whether it's the, enor the enormous percentage of young people in support of Palestinian rights, the, the enormous intersectionality. I mean, remember this this um, win that Ben and Jerry's had that at, at pulling out, even though they were sued by their parent company, it, it came about after a 10 year campaign asking Ben and Jerry's a company that is it's a its brand is about human rights that they stop selling in in illegal settlements and it was only when the movement for black lives when Ben and Jerry's came to them and said we want to do an ice cream flavor you know in support of black lives matter and and have the funding go to help your organizations and they said but you're phony. You can't be in support of human rights. Look at what you're doing, supporting sell, selling your ice cream in occupied land. And so it shows you the interconnectedness. It shows you how oppressed minority groups are banding together because face it, in America today, it is getting scary out there. And our, our best path to safety is to lock arms together and protect each other. I was going to say as well, uh, not just the Ben and Jerry's uh, thing, but also, you know, I found it interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with this um, young Gen Z actress who's uh, taking the world by storm, Jenna Ortega. Uh, she's in that new um, Netflix series, Wednesday, the, the Adams Family show and the, the recent Scream movies. But, you know, she has openly stated her support for Palestine uh, posting about how we need to decolonize Palestine. And this is like one of the biggest celebrities of Generation Z. So it seems like we're in a whole new world now. I couldn't see that happening uh, 10 years ago where you had one of the biggest actresses in Hollywood, you know, uh, you know, openly stating her support for Palestinians. Yeah, it, it, you're exactly right. More and more every day we're seeing um, people in film, you know, Mark Rydell and others, people in music, Roger Waters and others, that the list is just growing. I think um, uh, a group artists against apartheid in the UK just came out with a, a letter, um, I think also based on Smotrich and this 
far right extremist um, government with, you know, many, many names known to all of us. And, you know, each each one of us has the power to amplify those voices and to support those people and to call on people that we admire and say, hey, look, you support human rights in this area. You support, you know, uh, you fight against the oppression of people in this area. What about this? And and, and draw people out because th- that is how we hasten uh, an outcome where all people can live in safety and, you know, all people can get justice and all people can uh, live in equality with each other. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, if we're concerned about, say, um, the Kurds in Syria, or we're concerned about the uh, Yemeni people, um, you know, we have to sort of connect all these different um, activisms together, all these different concerns about human rights we have together, uh, and, and really come together on all these different issues and say, hey, enough's enough. Uh, we need to respect human rights. The very last thing I wanted to ask you, and this is kind of personal, uh, but you know, I was recently talking to the current uh, UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Territories, uh, uh, Francesca Albanese, and you know, it was interesting to me because uh, I, I think at times uh, people like herself or activists can sometimes feel exacerbated uh, talking about these issues because. You know, what What do you really, what more can really be said? I mean, we're talking about an occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, et cetera, that has gone on since 1967. We're talking about illegal annexations, de facto annexations. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's anything to argue about. I mean, this is out in the open. We can see it happening. We see that it's wrong. Um, and I, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to uh, keep heart and stay in the game and stay focused uh, because it could be exasperating dealing with the criticisms, the the smear campaigns, uh, the, the claims of anti-Semitism, the claims that we're just picking on Israel and not concerned about other countries, which I've always very much dislike that because I'm also critical of, say, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, as, as well as Israel. So how do you sort of keep your spirits up? How do you keep yourself from getting it uh, exasperated when it comes to this issue? Well, I think for one, uh, I owe that to my Palestinian friends and, you know, their families who are living it every single day. And two, I think that's, you know, that's part of organizations like Jewish Voice for Peace is creating a community where you're not alone in this, where you're meeting like-minded people, you're working on projects together, you're, you know, when, when you keep yourself busy doing things and when your ideas, you know, when you bring your ideas together with other people and you come up with a plan and you, you know, create events to educate the public, when you create demonstrations to protest people like um, Smotrich, it it helps you not be exasperated because you're busy trying to create change. And trust me, every single day, you you, you know, you, you, you talk to somebody and they say, oh, you know, I was wondering about that. And I was afraid to say anything. I was afraid to ask. And I think building community with others is a great way not to get exasperated. I'm also curious, you know, it just popped in my head to ask you this, is um, 
Do you consider your opposition to, say, the occupation or to Zionism as being related to your identity as a Jewish American? And I'm specifically thinking of this idea of Tikkun um, Ulam or repair of the world. Uh, you know, there is a, a sort of social justice tradition within the American Jewish community. Do you view yourself as part of that? And do you think uh, that opposition? to the occupation or to Zionism or to human rights abuses against Palestinians uh, can be part of a person's uh, Jewish identity. Absolutely. I see myself as, you know, a part of, and many of them are people in the 60s, the Freedom Riders who went down, you know, to the South and, you know, many Jews, you know, not all Jews, but many Jewish Americans fought um, during the civil rights movement and, and created lifetime bonds. and. I'm proud to say that there are people who did that who are part of Jewish Voice for Peace. Now, they are elders. They teach us lessons from, you know, the times when they were younger. And there are exact parallels to the kinds of things that we're talking about. And again, I think it comes back to that building of community um, and an interfaith community. It's here in Los Angeles where I live. We have a beautiful interfaith community, Christians and Muslims and Jews that come together to do this work. And I think that's where what fuels our tank that, you know, recharges our batteries, that makes you not feel alone, that, you know, helps you not become exasperated. And, you know, you know, I don't see people, I see people I get to meet all the time who have been doing this for decades longer than I have. They're not throwing up their arms. They believe in equality for all people, and they live it every day. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you, Esteve Chandler, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work, uh, any future projects you're working on? And maybe you could also let my listeners know uh, how they can get involved with or contact Jewish Voice for Peace. Thank you. Um, they can find me on social media. Uh, I'm very easy to find. Uh, they can listen to Middle East and Focus at KPFK. They can join and learn more about Jewish Voice for Peace at jvp.org. Uh, again, we invite people, even just the act of joining Jewish Voice for Peace, you know, bumps our numbers and shows that, you know, we are not a small fringe group. We're a large national organization representing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And, um, they can, you know, also look, you know, at our website and see our allied organizations. There are other organizations that people can join and get involved with. Um, and so I hope that we'll get to, you know, meet some of your listeners and followers. It's an honor to have been invited to be here with you um, and, you know, keep up the great work. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with S.T. Chandler to be enlightening. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said. Until next time.
You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.